listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, teeth, cut, and chemical stocks. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Arthur Agatston, who will talk about heart disease and the South Beach diet. Also, we'll find out why chocolate tastes so darn good. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. It's been a great week, huh? Oh my god, the sun's peaked out, which means it's a great weather for science. But not for Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I haven't been keeping up with that. What's going on with Michael Jackson? <laughs> I don't either, but I just see him in the headlines every day. It's kind of disturbing, though. The, the science headlines? Is he in there? <laughs> not quite. <laughs> I was thinking, if anybody's going to figure out cold fusion, it's going to be Michael Jackson. <laughs> and is it going to be black or white? I don't think it would matter at the quantum level. Because <laughs> actually, you can exist in both states at the oh, quantum level. Oh, of course. Right, so. Superposition, huh? Yes. So here's a question. Do you think King Tut died in a plane crash 10,000 years ago? According to the National Science Inquirer or whatever. All those tabloids. thought he was actually abducted by aliens and then died in a UFO crash. Oh, that one. I think we're a little bit off. It turns out he died in 1323 BC of a leg fracture. Was he playing soccer or something? We don't know. Apparently he was quite healthy up to the point. But what happened was recent studies from a CT image of his body shows that he had a fracture on his left thigh and most likely that caused an infection, which, you know, is actually quite normal if it's severe enough fracture mm. and an infection at the time could probably kill someone. Oh, that's interesting because uh, I read that he might have been killed by a blow from behind. Right, that was the prevailing theory because in 1968, a team at Liverpool had taken some x-rays and found bone fragments in his skull. But with this new CT study, they showed that he could not have received blows to his neck or his skull. In fact, those fragments are probably from the drilling that they did when the embalmers poured resin uh, and other fluids in there. Right, to suck out his brain and uh, fill it with something he, he needs, like resin. Yes. <laughs> I always knew you don't need your brain in the afterlife, right? <laughs> you hardly need it in this life either. But <laughs> no. Do I use it? <laughs> it remains to be seen. <laughs> yes. I know I don't use mine. <laughs> well, I mean, there's no conclusive evidence how he really died, but at least the suggestion that he died a violent death is most unlikely at this point. Well, I, I don't think it precludes him dying of a violent death. He could have been poisoned. <laughs> Well, with a leg fracture, he could have been in the middle of a karate fight or something. Oh, right. <laughs> or uh, taking on the Sphinx in a duel to the death. Yeah, I saw the mummy. <laughs> Many ways to die in ancient Egypt. <laughs> so if people want to know more about this. Uh, that's a very nice article. It was actually in the AP, and it was shown today in the Yahoo News. Okay, so I have another theory, actually, for King Tut's death. What's that? Gingivitis. Ooh, I think uh, he forgot to use the Listerine, huh? <laughs> or, uh, or drink the fluoridated water. Did they have that in ancient Egypt? I don't know, but I'm sure those involving fluids were pretty uh, antiseptic, right. right? Well, I'm not sure about the state of uh, King Tut's teeth, or even if they looked at that, but it turns out that... He did uh, have an overbite. There's nothing more sexy than an overbite, yeah. <laughs> and it runs in the family. <laughs> the mark of royalty. So it turns out a group of researchers at Tokyo's FAP Dental Institute have developed a novel way for repairing dental cavities. Wow. 
wow, you mean like they're re-engineering uh, them somehow? Well, actually, in a sense. I mean, they're actually using a micro-nanocrystal approach to actually filling very small cavities in the tooth. Okay, and then regrowing the actual fluoride matrix that, that's in the natural teeth? Right, exactly. That's actually a hydroxyapatite matrix. Okay. And they mix it with a little bit of fluoride, and that actually helps to uh, crystallize the actual normal material back right. in there. Which was actually a bit of a problem in the past because apparently dentists had actually had to remove large chunks of healthy teeth in order yes. to fill like small cavities. Right. So this actually uh, marks a bit of an advance for uh, hmm. anybody who needs a filling. Wow. It's going to be all natural one day, huh? <laughs> I thought you were going to use stem cells to uh, manufacture teeth. Well, you know, why stop there? Why not just like manufacture a whole new face? <laughs> <laughs> or a whole new body. I mean, yeah. really. And a brain. <laughs> But if people are interested in an early start on tooth decay, they can take a look in the recent edition of Nature, Volume 433. Cool, I don't have to brush anymore. So whenever you want to know what's going on with the sun, do you just stare with your eyes? Try and listen to it with my ears as well. <laughs> wow. It doesn't say much to me. <laughs> I think we've had a fight. Or maybe it burns. <laughs> So it turns out for most humans, looking at the sun is not very good because you eventually do go blind. And that also happens with satellites who want to observe the sun directly. Yeah. So it turns out right now there's a more indirect but safer way to do that is to use Jupiter. How can we possibly use Jupiter to look at the sun? Well, it turns out when the flares of the sun are increased, the X-ray emissions from Jupiter are also upped. So well, what happens is the ions from the sun will hit the uh, magnetosphere in Jupiter and that causes the emission of x-rays. Mm, I see. But there's some sort of time lag, I imagine, between the two events. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of these solar flares occur in the order of days or weeks, so okay. something you could observe. And the other nice thing is we can also observe if the Earth is opposite of Jupiter, we can see what's happening on the other side of the sun, which we normally, normally can't, can't see. on this side. Right. That's pretty clever. Is this correlation very strong? Uh, it seems very reliable and probably going to be one of techniques that they're going to use to observe the sun from now on. Why stop at Jupiter? We should use all the planets. Well, oh, they think that Saturn can also do the same thing, uh -huh. too. So right. Well, That'd be you interesting. Go. You know, and all this money spent on very expensive satellites when all we really need is planets. Yeah. So let's go build some planets. <laughs> so this was interesting stuff. It was published in the recent edition of Geophysical Research Letters. Okay, so Frank, what's your favorite chemical element? This week, I would go with berkelium. It's a very nice one. Californium is also quite good. Yes, and, and Einsteinium. Yes, we would also accept it Seaborgium. <laughs> and he was alive when they named it, too. Indeed. Seaborg was the only person, apparently, who could have written his entire name and address using chemical letters. Wow. Seaborgium, Laurentium for Lawrence Berkeley, uh -huh. Berkelium, Californium. Yeah. So it also turns out, though, that a chemist, uh, William H. McCarroll of Lawrenceville, New Jersey, was curious how many stocks actually had chemical symbols also for their stock symbol. Mm-hmm. Found that apparently... 67 companies had a symbol that matched the first 103 elements. Wow. So that's interesting enough, but then he created basically a hypothetical elemental fund tracking the behavior of these uh, stocks over uh, several weeks. Uh -huh. And he found that, in fact, the value of this fund increased by 8.6% over the S&P 500. And uh, taking a look over a whole year, it increased nearly 28% over the S&P 500. Wow, I think maybe on to something. <laughs> I wonder how the group four elements are doing. <laughs> Uh, I'm always more interested in the noble gases. They can't lose any electrons, you know. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but his explanation for this is actually that since older companies are more likely to have two-letter stock symbols, ah. they're more likely to be more stable companies. Uh, and the old economy. Indeed. That he also has looked at what he calls compound funds, <laughs> three-letter stock symbols that look like chemical compounds. Okay. And those those seem to do quite as well. As huh. Must have combinatorial uh, search there. <laughs> Indeed. Huh? So very fascinating stuff, and it was actually published in the recent edition of the Chemical and Engineering News.
And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Dr. Arthur Agatston will join us to discuss heart disease and the South Beach diet. So stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, studies have recently been released that heart disease is the number one killer of women in the United States. With such a growing epidemic threatening the lives of many women, preventative measures to reduce the risks of heart disease are required. Although no consensus has yet been reached on the most effective preventative regime, it is clear that diet can play a crucial role in preventing heart disease. Well, join us today on Berkeley Grocks to discuss diet and heart disease is Dr. Arthur Agustin. Dr. Agustin is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Miami School of Medicine, who has authored more than 100 scientific publications. He's perhaps best known for his popular book, The South Beach Diet, which was born out of his efforts to help reduce the risk of heart disease in many of his patients. Dr. Agustin, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Good to be with you. Uh, well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and certainly a very interesting issue as far as the risk of heart disease in women as now the number one risk for death and disease. Disease, really. Um, I mean, how big a risk is heart disease in women today? Well, it's, it's the number one killer of women by far, and actually several magnitudes of risk above things like breast cancer and osteoporosis causing hip fracture, whereas surveys of women, when they ask what they think they're going to die of, they're more fearful of cancer and osteoporosis and hip fracture, so they're not nearly as aware as they should be that they're more likely to die of heart disease than breast cancer. Hmm. I guess men are probably more aware of this than women, do you think? Uh, yes. Partly where it comes from is there is some delay. Women are protected premenopausally when they're producing estrogens. So the earliest heart attacks are more likely to occur in men. But postmenopausally, women are catching up to men quite quickly and actually surpassing men as far as heart attacks, certainly strokes. Hmm. There's certainly some genetic basis for heart disease in men. Is it probably the same in women as well? Yeah, it's the same essential risk factors Today, one of the growing risk factors, if you look at a cardiac care unit, the majority of the men and women there have either pre-diabetes or diabetes, which is very much lifestyle related as opposed to the occasional patient with a pure genetic problem where they just produce very high bad cholesterol or something else that hurts their arteries, not related to lifestyle. 
So what sort of uh, risk factors then can uh, women look for? Like how can they find out if the cardiovascular system is at risk? Well, one of the problems with risk today is that in this pre-diabetes and diabetic group that I mentioned, they tend to have normal cholesterol. The reason being their good cholesterols tend to be low and their good cholesterol particles, the HDL, and their bad cholesterol particles, the LDL, tend to be very small. So often their total cholesterols are less than 200, but they're still at risk. Uh, what they will have often is a family history of diabetes that may be in a grandparent, may have occurred late in life, um, but there's still a family history of diabetes and their triglycerides tend to be high and their HDL tend to be low and where they tended to have adult weight gain, much of it concentrated in the belly. And all those are particularly signs of risk in women as well as men where if you're just looking at the total cholesterol or the bad cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, you can be really be misled. Um, why is it so important really to pay attention to these early signs as far as signs of heart disease? Well, your heart disease builds up over a, a lifetime. If a woman is heading for a heart attack at age 60, they're building up plaque in the arteries of the heart in their 30s and 40s. Uh, in uh, Vietnam casualty studies, actually 25% of the soldiers at autopsy had raised arteriosclerotic plaques, but it's in the vessel wall and it's silent. And the first manifestation of heart disease over half of the time is a large heart attack or sudden death. So you often don't get a warning before you're in big trouble. It is possible to identify the arteriosclerosis in the coronary arteries early with a heart scan. And imaging has been getting better and better every year. It's quick and it's non-invasive. So if there is some of these risk factors in the family, we recommend that women after the age of 50 have a heart scan. They also can have advanced lipid testing going beyond just the cholesterol and the, the good and the bad cholesterol. And Berkeley is the home of the Berkeley Heart Lab, which pioneered a lot of the work in the more advanced blood tests. They popularized the concept that the size of the bad cholesterol particle is just as important as the total amount mm -hmm. of bad cholesterol. And our experience has really borne that out. Um, so you did mention this heart scan. What does that actually involve? Um, it's done with a fast CAT scanner, and it only takes about five minutes. Lie down, take a deep breath. Uh, there's no preparation. And I understand that it's now being reimbursed for the first time by insurance, uh, by Blue Cross Blue Shield in California, or will be soon, because the problem around most of the country is it's considered screening, and it's not covered by insurance. But it's a simple test, and the amount of calcium in the coronary arteries is the best predictor we have of future heart attack and stroke. And everybody has their own level of cholesterol where it's actually getting into the vessel wall. As I mentioned, often even people with cholesterol less than 200 are building up the plaque. How much of an issue is preventative medicine really as far as doctors are concerned? I mean, you certainly mentioned that a lot of insurance companies don't take preventative medicine very seriously. Well, you know, in fact, a book that we're working on now, about a year, is 
to tell the country that one of the big secrets in the country is that doctors who are practicing aggressive prevention have essentially stopped seeing heart attacks and strokes in their practices, and that's the experience I've had. While things are improving every year with what we know today, the great majority of heart attacks, strokes, and invasive procedures, uh, bypass surgeries, and angioplasties, uh, PTCAs, are absolutely uh, preventable. And the earlier you detect the process, again, it's lifelong process, the earlier you detect it or work on it, the better chance you have, the easier it is to to prevent it. If we're all on a great diet and exercise program from childhood, there'll be almost no heart attack and stroke. If you discover you're at high risk and things are building up in your 50s, then it's usually a combination of diet, exercise, and medication as well. Hmm. Sir, your popular book, The South Beach Diet, was essentially trying to address this issue as far as creating a diet that would help reduce the risk of heart disease, and you came up with something called the Agatston score. Yeah, well, the Agatston score actually preceded the, the diet. That uh-huh. was the heart scan that I developed along with Dr. Janowitz in, back in 1988, and there's been a lot of research on it since. And again, that's a measure of the amount of calcium in the heart arteries in the vessel wall, and the calcium reflects the total burden of arteriosclerosis, which is the best predictor of future heart attack and stroke. And you can identify it before there's any limitation in blood flow. So this is a stage when you're not going to have any symptoms where your exercise test will be normal. A good example is President Clinton, who never had a heart scan. Mm. And he didn't know he was at high risk. And he had many negative stress tests. He had no symptoms until very late in the game. He did well on our diet, and he stopped his medications because he didn't know he was at high risk. If he had had a heart scan 10 years ago, his heart would have lit up like a Christmas tree with the plaque. And because of that experience, they did a heart scan on President Bush. He had a little plaque, and they actually put him on medication. Hmm. As far as your diet is concerned, uh, why is that a good preventative measure for uh, reducing the risk of heart disease? Well, if you go into the cardiac care unit, a lot of the patients have prediabetes or diabetes, and that's from excess processed carbohydrates and bad fats like the trans fat. And with the South Beach diet, having the good fats and good carbohydrates, lean source of protein, plenty of fiber, prediabetes and diabetes is absolutely preventable. And again, the earlier you start, the easier it is to prevent. Mm -hmm. And the medications for dealing with it are not great. You know, there's some metabolic problems where medications alone will prevent future heart attack and stroke. But for the majority of people with prediabetes or or diabetes, lifestyle, exercise, and proper diet is an absolutely crucial component. Medications are just like a little Band-Aid. They help a little bit, but if you continue to eat badly and not exercise, they won't be enough. In your practice over the years since the book was released, have you seen uh, an improvement in the uh, general health of the public as far as taking care of themselves diet and exercise-wise? Well, I'm not sure the general public, certainly in the 90s and recently, the prevalence of, of obesity has continued to go up in my practice. And I, I first, I was frustrated with a low-fat diet. I was watching my patients in the country and, frankly, myself get mm. fatter 
on low-fat foods. And that's when, because there was a lot of new information on the heart benefits of good fats and fiber and low-glycemic carbohydrates that I put my patients on the diet and they did so well we started to report our experience at national meetings when it was picked up by the local media and they asked us to put South Florida on the diet that it went from a clinical and academic exercise to something that went public. The good news is now the principles that I've talked about, the good fats, good carbs, lean source of protein, plenty of fiber, are the consensus of expert opinion. Mm -hmm. So instead of hearing low fat one day, low carb the next day, the public and physicians are going to begin to get one message. The new national diet guidelines are very consistent with these principles. And the challenge now is application Mm -hmm. and getting the food and restaurant industry and particularly schools uh, to get better food choices out there and to make it easier to eat healthy. In traditional Mediterranean societies where they don't have fast foods, they don't know they're on a diet, they're not counting calories or weighing food, and they're doing absolutely fine. And we have to get surrounded by good food choices, and that's what will make it really easy to stay on a good diet. Well, I certainly hope that takes place and uh, people start eating healthy and exercising right. Uh, Well, Dr. Agustin, it does look like we are slightly out of time here, but I just want to thank you again for joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss this very fascinating issue and telling us all about uh, preventative measures for heart disease. Thank you. It's very good to be with you. And you were just listening to Dr. Arthur Agatston discussing heart disease and the South Beach diet. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, you can find out why does chocolate taste so good. So stay tuned.
back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered how a three-way light bulb works? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder how a three-way light bulb works? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. The most common three-way lighting comes from your basic incandescent light bulb. Even though most people have at least one three-way light in their home, they have a dim understanding of how they work. That's why we're going inside one. Look, inside this bulb, it's like a big glass dome. And sticking up in the middle are not one, but two thin coiled wires which connect to the bulb's base. The base screws into the lamp and conducts electricity into the bulb. And those two coiled wires I just mentioned, they're called filaments. And they're the part of the bulb that heats up when electricity from the base flows through them. When our bulb is turned on, the filament can reach a blistering 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit and glow quite hot. That's how the bulb gives off light. Now, most regular light bulbs have only one filament. But remember, our three-way bulb has two. This one right here is 50 watts. And that one over there is 100 watts. Here's what happens. The first click of the lamp sends electrical current to the 50 watt filament. The next click sends current to the 100 watt filament and turns off the first. And the third click sends current to both filaments simultaneously, creating 150 watts of bright white light. Hope you found today's show quite illuminating. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. Ooh, Everyday Science Lady, your science facts always turn me on. Yeah, thank you very much. And now here's Herr Dr. Professor Einstein with the answer to last week's question of the week. You know, I love chocolate. The chocolate is very, very good. But you know, sometimes when I melt it, I'm trying to eat it, it doesn't taste quite as good. Why is that? Well, the reason is when you've melted, you're separating out all the very compounds that are going to the chocolate, not just the chocolate itself. So the fats and all the sugars and things like that, they get separated out and it's not so good after that, yeah? Okay, and now it's uh, Tokyo Kid with the, this week's question of the week. Uh, it is about your health. Uh, what is the glucagon? What does it do to your blood? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at groks at hotmail.com. And this time you will win something. It is the South Beach Diet Book. So email us at groks at hotmail.com. And uh, you must be the first person to respond here at the grox at the hotmail.com. Uh. And you also may lose a little more weight. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese.